Hey guys, it's Dr. Delvina, board certified psychiatrist in South Florida. Are you ready to take the couch? Hey, hey, hey. Happy Sunday night, brain lovers. It's Dr. Delvina, your host of the Brain Love Podcast. It's another Sunday night, and I've done 25 episodes on this podcast already. Thank you for taking time to join me on my couch as we discover and explore all the realms of the brain, everything in the body is affected by the brain and ran by the brain. So anything that is controlled by the brain falls under the umbrella of brain love. So tonight I am discussing prostate cancer. So some of you are like, what prostate cancer? What does that have to do with the brain? Well, so September, besides being Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, suicide is also National Prostate Health Month, also known as National Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. It's observed every September in North America by health experts and advocates and individuals who are concerned with men's prostate health and prostate cancer. And the reason why I wanted to discuss this on my podcast tonight is because a lot of black men have been diagnosed with prostate cancer and more and more being diagnosed at younger ages. And as you can imagine, being diagnosed with prostate cancer can affect relationships, interpersonal relationships. And at times, that is why some of the couples come to or call the office for appointments for psychotherapy because there may be a medical concern that is affecting adversely the, the relationship. And so, you know, I'm a physician, as you guys know, I'm a physician who specializes in psychiatry. And so for me, this is important to get the word out to all my peoples out there about prostate cancer. So come on, join me on the couch as you listen to a previous interview that I completed with Dr. Jeffrey Moore, who is a uh, cancer doctor. We call them hematologist oncologists or heme-onc doctors. He's a cancer doctor up in Virginia. He and I attended University of Maryland in uh, Baltimore, Maryland for the, well, me for my residency, he for his internal medicine residency, and then he went up to New York to complete his fellowship in heme-onc because he had to do an additional three years. So he's well-trained to talk about prostate cancer. So listen, the vast majority of men with prostate cancer are over 50, and a significant majority are over the age of 65. However, there are cases of prostate cancer in men in their 20s and 30s, and when that happens, typically the cancer can be very aggressive. If you have a, um, a husband or a significant other, and they have a first-degree relative, meaning a father, brother, or a son with prostate cancer, your significant other's risk of developing prostate cancer is two to three times higher than the average risk. Let me say that again. Let's just say a man who has a first-degree relative, meaning his father, his brother, or a son, if he has a father, brother, or a son with prostate cancer, that man's risk of developing prostate cancer is two to three times higher than the average risk. The risk increases even further with the number of relatives diagnosed with prostate cancer. So this is a very important discussion to have. Now, for the women who come to the office who are frustrated and um, overwhelmed, oftentimes it, when it's prostate cancer involved, it's because prostate cancer can also 
have an effect on a man's arterials or blood vessels. And these blood vessels are what provides blood all over the body, including to the penis. So if those blood vessels are not dilating, they're not working, what do you think happens to the man's penis? He may be impotent or may have what we call erectile dysfunction. In this interview with Dr. Moore, we don't go into the details of impotence or erectile dysfunction, which can be caused by circumstances associated with prostate cancer, whether it's the cancer itself or the treatment that's rendered. But we do talk about ways to prevent it, and we give you the facts about prostate cancer. For, so for ladies, for you to share with your significant others, husbands, boyfriends, sons, brothers, uncles, fathers, and then for you men, I just want you to get the straight-up facts about what prostate cancer, how it affects how it affects men. So just to give you guys a couple of tidbits before we get into the interview, um, if you're someone who's suffering from some sort of erection problem, you can do things with your diet to try to improve that. And a couple of the things I'll tell you that are super easy to consume Watermelon, papayas, and bananas. These three things are full of potassium. So potassium helps in smooth and and blood flow. It helps to dilate the arterioles. So dilation means the arterioles, the blood vessels get larger. If it gets larger, that means more blood flow can go through. And if you're getting more blood flow, then that means that should improve your erection. That's something that studies have found recently. And um, I'll share a couple other tidbits before we go into the interview. Consumption of sugars, some sugar-sweetened beverages, have been associated with increased overall prostate cancer risk. So if you're someone who loves to consume sugary beverages and sugar and all these sugar-sweet drinks, stop it now. And then the last tidbit before we start with Dr. Jeffrey Moore from one of my therapy Thursdays, when you sit for long periods, it puts pressure on your prostate gland and it causes it to inflame over time. So try to avoid sitting for long periods of times, men. So if you like to ride a bike, try not to sit and ride that bike constantly for several hours at a time or several minutes and sitting down for too long also. So if you're someone who works at a desk, Try not to sit for too long because it can cause inflammation of your prostate over time. Okay, and now for our talk about prostate cancer. Thank you for being on the couch, guys. It's Therapy Thursday. I'm Dr. Delvina, psychiatrist in South Florida, uh, DRT Behavioral Services, Brain Love. And um, I'm talking about prostate cancer tonight, and the reason being is because it's, um, it's an area or a section of medicine that people really are not knowledgeable in, and it's, it's the most common cancer in men, so this is something that we should absolutely discuss. I have a really good guest tonight. He and I actually trained at the same hospital in Baltimore, the University of Maryland um, in Baltimore for Green Streets. And downtown, he was in the heme onc program, which is hematology and oncology, and I was in the psychiatry residency. Um, he was actually an in internal medicine, pardon me. So um, Dr. Jeffrey Moore, um, so people don't really understand the training that some specialists have to go through to be, to be qualified to treat you for your condition. So when folks have cancer, they see an oncologist. That 
specialist is also trained in something called hematology. So we call it heme-onc in medicine. But before they can even study heme-onc, they have to undergo uh, a residency in internal medicine. So let's talk about really briefly just the major um, specialties in medicine. So there's family practice. You guys know those, that's, those are doctors who can treat people from the time they're born all the way until they die, basically. So they treat every age. A lot of them would uh, treat um, women, um, men. They'll do gyne exams. They'll do a lot of different things. They combine gynecology, dermatology, everything that you need a family practice doc can do for you. But when things become a little more complicated, they'll refer you to a specialist. Internal medicine doctors, so family practice doctors, they undergo a residency that's three years. Internal medicine doctors, their residency is three years as well. Um, so once they finish their residency of three years, they are internists, that's what we call them. So internal medicine doctors and family practice doctors, they are primary care physicians. But internists, a lot of them, well, some of them, I should say, will subspecialize. They'll go into other specialties that require an additional three years of training, which is um, paid training, but, you know, not as much as they would make if they were a specialist. So they're still training. So there's four years of medical school, three years of an internal medicine or IMED residency, and another three years in their specialty. So a heart doctor who's a cardiologist, they'll do three years um, after medical school in internal medicine, and then they'll train for three years in cardiology. A GI doctor, gastroenterologist, they will do the same. Three years of internal medicine, three years of gastroenterology training or GI training to become a specialist. Rheumatologists, people who treat rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, autoimmune diseases, same thing. Same thing. Three years of internal medicine, three years of a rheumatology residency. Dr. Jeffrey Moore, who we trained at the same hospital, he was in internal medicine, I was in psychiatry. He is the only black oncologist I know. And so he is not here in Florida, he is up in Virginia. And I asked him to please come on because I know a lot of black men, men who look like Dr. Moore, who don't understand the, proce the process of prostate cancer or what it is. And also their wives and sisters and daughters we don't understand these things sometimes. So we got to break it down because when you get in the office with your doctor, nowadays with healthcare, you got like five, 10 minutes to like spit up all these questions. And when we're talking about cancer, that's not enough time, man, for you to understand what's going on. And so, yes, Google is available and you can learn so much on Google, but let's not do that. Let's share information and make it easy to learn. So Dr. Jeffrey Moore received his medical degree from the Temple University School of Medicine told you he did his res residency at the University of Mar Maryland Medical Center in internal medicine. When he finished those three years, he moved up to New York to complete his hematology and oncology fellowship at Columbia University Medical Center. Very well-trained brother. Dr. Moore's research experience includes exploring novel chemotherapy regimens for the treatment of advanced pancreatic cancer, which used to be a death sentence. Um, and now it seems like people are actually surviving um, so we won't get into pancreatic cancer, but I remember when I was in college, there was a researcher who developed pancreatic cancer, and he died within six months. But I'm noticing that people are living longer um, who have been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And just like with any type of cancer, it has to be staged. So, Dr. Moore, unmute yourself, please, just in case I say something that is absolutely wrong, because I know this is not my lane. Yes, Welcome <laughs> Thank you for having me, Dr. Delvina. You're, you're spot on uh, with your, first of all, thank you for having me and that fantastic intro. 
Um, it's problematic that I'm the only brother that you know that's a medical oncologist, but I guess we'll talk about that at some other time. Yeah. Uh, no, but you, you're spot on in terms of the training that we all go through in terms of being an internist and then going on for uh, subspecialty training like I did in medical oncology and hematology. So, um, you know, one thing I've always respected about you that, you know, maybe your audience may not know is that you, you've, although you're an expert psychiatrist, you're, you're just a, a fantastic all-around doctor with good knowledge and good skills and all of medicine. So that, that's really oh, to be Oh, thank you. You've always been on point with that, so. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Dr. Moore. I appreciate it. And um, folks, if you're watching and your kids aren't watching, this is something you gotta show your kids later so that they see this. Two black minority physicians talking about medicine so that we can inspire some more black folks, minorities, brown people, people of color, Negroes, African-Americans, AKA whatever you want to call it. We need more. And like you said, it's a problem that you're the only one I know who's an oncologist, an oncologist. Right. right. Absolutely. I agree hundred percent. So we need more people like us treating people like us. <laughs> there it is. I have to quote that. So I told you this would be a podcast too. Said by Dr. Moore, Dr. Jeffrey. You're from Pittsburgh, right? Yep, born and raised in Pittsburgh. So I uh, grew up there through high school. And, you know, you kind of gave the rest of my bio. Went to Philly, Penn undergrad, Temple, Maryland, where I trained with you, New York for a few years. And I've been here in private practice in Northern Virginia in the D.C. suburbs. So Alexandria, Virginia, Fairfax County, uh, Prince William County. I've been here for the past 11 years. So, Okay. Perfect. So guys, he is no slouch. He ain't a slug. This is a very informed physician. So I'm bringing you the best of the best. I always tell people you got to look at the reference, right? You got to look who's talking. Why should you listen to them? I have proven that Dr. Moore is qualified to speak on this topic. So let's dive in. All right. Let's do it. First question. And folks who are watching, listen, call 951 my brain 951 my brain if you have a question 951 my my brain b-r-a-i-n and you can ask your question he can hear you here um, but the first question i have what is a prostate so uh the prostate is an organ uh that's uh, found in the pelvis of, of men and it's a part of our genital urinary system essentially uh, a part of the system that we use to urinate, expel urine, uh, and also involved with sexual function. Uh, it, it's just below the bladder, sort of sits at the base of the bladder and around the urethra, which obviously is how we expel urine. Uh, and it's usually about the size of a quarter or a walnut or so in most men, you know, most young to middle-aged men. Uh, the, the function of the prostate is to uh, produce and uh, excrete prostatic fluid, which is a part of semen. And essentially what it does is it helps sperm uh, with motility, also helps sperm survive their journey uh, after men ejaculate with the goal of finding the egg, fertilizing the egg, and impregnating women, which is why we're all here. So that's really the function of the prostate. Okay, so it has a urological function, meaning urination, people watching, peeing, um, using the bathroom, going number one, if we make it real basic, and then also the sexual function of the prostate. Um, so that was actually my next question for you is, okay, so it is an organ. It's something that we, that um, only men have. So women, don't say you're eating tomatoes for your prostate. You don't have a prostate. <laughs> men and women have pelvises, but 
Women, you have something different in your pelvis area, and men, you have something else. Um, yeah, and I, I have had that question sometimes when I speak to you know audiences. So that's, I'm glad you come. Women, no prostate. Yeah, yeah <laughs> because you know people don't know. They don't. They they didn't. They didn't have anatomy class. Most folks. So prostates are specific to men. And uh, and and so I want to go over again. Um, the sexual function of the prostate because a lot of times what happens um, is that well first of all men are nervous about getting that prostate exam and that's because of where it's located right. which you just kind of repeat that um, it's in the pelvis and we have to do a rectal we have to go through the rectum to get to the prostate correct right absolutely so you know if, if you men who've had a prostate exam which really if you're over 40 especially if you're a brother or a person of color you you should have had a prostate exam with your your family physician or your internal medicine physician. Uh, the, the prostate is also sort of located in front of the rectum. So in order to examine the prostate, your doctor would have to do a rectal exam. Um, they would have to go in several inches where they can locate the prostate and it's sort of on the lower side of the rectum there. And with an experienced physician can probably feel about a third of the prostate on a prostate exam. So it's not the greatest test in the world, but it does, it is a part of the screening test that we can use to find prostate cancer early. Okay, and so listen, let's, let's um, I want to emphasize what you just said. If you are a black male or minority male, black African-American Islander, you need a prostate exam by the time you're age 40, correct? Yeah, so, so that kind of leads into uh, screening for prostate cancer, which is, um, it is a very controversial topic, um, but just to kind of keep it simple, for, for me, for any people who would be considered high risk, which would be anybody of African descent, like you said, any brothers, um, for down in Dade County, you know, you got a lot of Haitians, a lot of uh, Afro-Latinos, um, a lot of poor people of Puerto Rican descent, anyone who is of African descent uh, would be considered high risk by most prostate cancer doctors, or for any brothers out there of any race or any background who have a strong family history of prostate cancer, they need to definitely talk about screening with their doctor and consider getting that done. And, you know, just to kind of clear things up, screening is a, a test that doctors use to pick up conditions earlier with the goal of uh, improving your outcome of that condition. By catching it early, you're increasing your chances of cure. So if you get uh, screen for prostate cancer is diagnosed. You hopefully diagnose it early, and then your chances of curing that prostate cancer increase. Same is for women and mammograms and colonoscopies and other things that, you know, obviously we talk about and hopefully our audience has spoken about with their physicians. But for, for any men over 40, you definitely want to have a conversation with your doctor about screening for prostate cancer. And that involves the, the digital rectal exam or prostate exam and also uh, a PSA, which is a blood test. Okay. So guys, so we've already defined what the prostate, if you're coming in late, we talked about what is a prostate, the two functions, the two main functions of the prostate. Then we kind of went into the pro prostate screening, screening for cancer. So Dr. Moore talked about the digital rectal exam or rectal exam and why it's important, when you should have it, and if you're African-American or of African descent, why you should have it um, maybe earlier than the majority. Um, and then also the blood tests, the PSA, the prostate, uh, is it specific antigen? Yes, prostate-specific antigen, PSA. Sorry for... Hey! <laughs> of course <Okay>. you know that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, 
I've been out of residency for what 13 years now, so and out of medical it's school like, for it's like riding a bike. It's like riding a bike. Right, right, right. But I applaud myself when I can remember some little things like that. <laughs> no. So guys, so the rectal exam, the PSA. Um, before we move on to the next question, let's say again, um, tell us again, why do men have a prostate? Yeah. So, so, so the, the, the major, major function of the prostate is to produce and secrete prostatic fluid, which is a part of semen, along with other things, obviously. Uh, but the goal of prostatic fluid is to basically help the sperm. So they basically increase sperm motility, increase sperm survival. And again, the goal is when we have sex and when we ejaculate, the, the biological goal is to for the sperm to impregnate the egg, to create a baby. Again, that's why we're all here. So really the, the, the prostate, its main function is to help men get women pregnant, quite simply. Um, it, it, it does serve some other functions. Like I said, it's at the base of the bladder. So it, it can sort of serve some function with uh, urinary control as well. But the main, main function is, is sort of sexual reproductive. And I wanted you to reiterate because we'll come back to that, right? Because there are a lot of men who don't feel like a man anymore because he's had his prostate removed. And so, you know, you just basically said if you're um, if you're older and you've already had your children, then maybe your prostate is not the most important thing in your life when you're in your 70s or you're in your 60s and you may have to have um, undergo surgery to remove your prostate. Because right. some of our some of our brothers may sign off early. If you have your prostate removed, you are still a man. You can still have sex. All those Yay! things that you did before, you can still do it. So let's get that out there right out front, just in case somebody has to run out for dinner or something like that. <laughs> I love it. So guys, if you have to have your prostate removed, you are still a man. Absolutely. A man. Yes, you don't have to come and see someone like myself, who's a mental health expert. Uh, to help you because you feel down because you may have to lose your prostate. You are still a man. You heard it from the expert here, Dr. Moore. Now, next question. Why do men develop prostate cancer? So the answer is we really don't know. Um, And I know a lot of times physicians and science, we we hate to say we don't know. Uh, But we really don't know why some men develop prostate cancer and some do. Um, It it is very prevalent. It's the most common non-skin cancer in men in the United States. Um, About one out of every five men of African descent or black men will get prostate cancer in their life. One out of every six white men or Caucasian men, men of European descent, will get prostate cancer in their life. So it's extremely common. Um, It's one of the number one killers of men with cancer as well. Uh, so it, it very prevalent, but we still don't know why it happens. Um, the, the sort of accepted scientific thought is that it's uh, testosterone driven. So testosterone, as we all know, is the hormone that actually men and women both make testosterone, just like men and women both make estrogen and the other hormones, but men have more testosterone than women. So um, but we know that testosterone is sort of the main biochemical uh, driver in the body for prostate cancer. But again, we still don't know why some men get it and some don't. Uh, like most cancers, it's also a disease of the elderly. So the average age is probably around 65 or 66. Uh, but we do see men as young as men in their teens with prostate cancer. 
So any, it, basically any uh, male of sexual maturity age could develop prostate cancer. And uh, one thing that's concerning is we're starting to see more and more young men, more young brothers with prostate cancer, uh, sort of, you know, under age 40. That's increasing probably about 1% to 2% per year since the 80s. And what's very concerning about that is that because it's under 40, we don't screen those patients. So, um, you know, but that, that's kind of a long answer to your initial question, but we really don't know what causes prostate cancer. But testosterone has something to do with it. Uh, there's probably some lifestyle factors as well. So do you think that um, in these men who are developing prostate cancer at a younger age, do you think it's testosterone driven? Do we think? It, my, honestly, I don't really know. Um, and that's not an area that I've, that I've researched extensively, but it's probably more environmental driven. Um, wow. You know, sort of as our society develops, there's more sort of things in the environment that may um, increases our chance for cancer. So it probably has something to do with that, but that, that's a very complex interplay. Um, but most likely it has something to do with lifestyle and environment. Okay. Dr. Moore, expound on that. When you say environment, what exactly right. do you mean by environment and, uh, and lifestyle? Right. So that involves anything, you know, I, we're, we're, we're sort of, we're maturing faster, both men and women. Um, you know, so men are reaching sexual maturity at a younger age as are women on average. Now, a lot of that has to do with, um, uh, our, our nutrition and our diet, uh, probably some of that has to do with, you know, consumption of animal products, many of which contain things that either would promote sexual maturity or actually drive it as well. You know, and some, a lot of the foods we eat, there's testosterone that's placed in the meat and estrogen and things of that nature, nature to make the animals bigger and produce more meat or more milk. So it's, some of it's probably associated with that. Um, it, it, who knows if there's other things in the environment in terms of, you know, exposure to radiation. These are all other theories that are out there. Uh, but again, kind of getting back to the initial thesis, we really just don't know. Most yeah. of these are observational studies just saying that it's happening. It's happening earlier. It's happening more common. And we're sort of as a medical community trying to figure all those things out. So why one in black men versus or in comparison to one in six white men? Right. Another excellent question, and we really don't know. Uh, some of it probably is genetically driven. Uh, but, you know, an interesting thing is if you look at rates of prostate cancer in sub-Saharan Africa, where obviously many of our, most of our ancestors came from, and you compare that to rates of prostate cancer in, say, Jamaica, and then in the continent of the United States, there's differences there. So um, we don't know what causes those differences, but we know that those rates of cancer or less. Uh, it, it, and it also would be interesting to look at when you look at sort of um, in sub-Saharan Africa, people in rural environments that don't have a Western diet or Western lifestyle versus people in major cities like, you know, Johannesburg or, you know, um, Accra, Ghana, where they are adopting more of a Western lifestyle and Western diet. We're seeing that their prostate cancer incidences are going up. So as they act more like us, eat more like us, wow. Prostate cancer rates are going up. So suggestive that there is something to do with diet, um, you know, as a big driver, which is not really a surprise with, you know, a lot of the disease conditions that we see. Gotcha. All right. Um, and so, well, and the next question is, um, this is a good segue because it is, how can a man reduce their risk of developing prostate cancer? And you kind of just mentioned some of those things, but we'll, you know, just blatantly state what can one do? Right. 
if I'm a young man, I'm 18, 19, and I'm thinking about my lifestyle and I don't want to develop prostate cancer. And I'll say this, I think I remember in medical school or somewhere during training, uh, one of my preceptors or attending saying, if a man lives long enough, every man will develop some form of prostate cancer. Right. Yeah. So good question. Just to kind of answer that last touch on that last point that you made. It is a, a disease of the elderly. So the elderly, the older you are as a man, the more testosterone exposure you've had, so more likely you're going to get prostate cancer. Uh, there's some studies where they looked at uh, cadavers and autopsies. Basically, they did um, autopsies or medical examinations on people who've died, and they found rates of prostate cancer as high as 70, 80 percent. Wow. Um, which speaks to that, obviously, a lot of us will develop prostate cancer, but many of those patients, many of those men, didn't have symptoms from their prostate cancer. So it was there, but it wasn't causing problems. So prostate cancer comes in many different flavors and varieties. Some are super bad and will kill you quickly. Others are not so bad. They're there, they've probably been there for years or decades and they never cause you any problems. So, um, so your preceptor, your, your, your professor back at University of Maryland was 100% right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in terms of prevention, um, there's it, it, the prevention piece is again another complex interplay. We kind of touched on that a few minutes ago when we looked at incidents. But um, in general, there's not any one specific thing that you can do. You know, you can't eat, you know, green apples or grapes or you know, drink you know, red wine that will decrease your chances of dying from prostate cancer. Um, but I always tell people that uh, the number one killer is still cardiovascular diseases, stroke, kidney disease, um, you know, heart attack, coronary artery disease. And that's all as an interplay, as you know, with uh, diabetes as well, which is an epidemic in our country. So really the best thing you can do in terms of uh, health for prostate cancer is to have a good cardiovascular based diet, um, you know, a, a cardiac healthy diet that a lot of us call it. And it comes in a lot of different flavors you know, the Mediterranean diet, the diabetes diet, et cetera, low sodium diet. Um, so those things tend to be plant-centered, meaning, um, you know, you eat a lot of plants. doesn't necessarily mean you have to be vegetarian or avoid all meat, but they tend to be plant-centered, meaning the, ma the majority of the calories in that diet is based in plants. Um, when they do consume protein, it tends to be healthy pro healthier proteins, lean meats, uh, fish, um, you know, things of that nature, avoiding red meat and uh, processed meats, which that also probably sort of speaks to uh, obesity, which we know is a risk factor for prostate cancer as well. Um, so really, you just want to maintain a, a good quality diet that goes along with cardiovascular health, but also be active. Um, you know, anytime you turn on the TV, uh, you know, former First Lady Michelle Obama talked about, you know, getting everybody moving. Uh, so really the same things that our, our grandparents taught us when we were young, eat your vegetables, exercise, go outside and play, overall be healthy. And that in and of itself will decrease your mortality in general, but also from prostate cancer. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So really just <laughs> simple. <laughs> gotcha. Vegetables, avoid bad meat and, you know, exercise for 30 minutes a day. So, yeah, that seems to be the recommendation for a lot of things, right? Absolutely. So, as you know, that also improves your, your mental health as well. So Yeah. So we need to have that as our basic foundation of how we live. It needs to be our, our lifestyle. Is uh, prostate cancer genetically linked? Yes. So um, anywhere from 5 to 10% of cases 
Um, so five or 10 out of every 100 cases of prostate cancer, there's some genetic linkage. Uh, and there's multiple genes that can cause uh, prostate cancer, um, including the breast cancer gene that we're all familiar with from Angelina Jolie and a few other people. Um, but there, there's, you know, probably half a dozen other ones that we know about. And there's probably, you know, a hundred dozen others that we don't know about yet as a scientific community. But, uh, you know, we see clusters of prostate cancer in families. Uh, I'm actually a, an example to tell you the truth. Uh, both my grandparents died, both my grandfathers, excuse me, died of prostate cancer. Um, and one of my mother's brothers also had prostate cancer. Um, so, you know, that's what we call a family cluster. And many of those were, were at a relatively young age, you know, late 50s, wow. early 60s. So, that was my next question. How old were they when they were diagnosed? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's what we would call a, a family cluster. Uh, usually when you have one or two first degree relatives, um, parents, grandparents, or siblings, that would qualify as a family cluster. Uh, but then obviously the more extended family members you have, and then anyone at a young age, under the age of 50, roughly. Um, but a lot of that's still being worked out in terms of the scientific community, in terms of finding those genes, um, learning how to test for them, and then what the heck do we do about them when we do find them? So, gotcha. but certainly a fair amount that we know of is genetically linked. So it's important, oh, yeah, important, super important that you know your family history. So many of us, you know, come from blended families or we don't know our father or our mother died young or, um, mm -hmm. you know, mom never talked about her history or dad never went to the doctor. So it's important that, that we talk to each other and know about our family history. And that's a perfect example. But that lends itself to a lot of other things as well. Uh, you know, so many conditions are genetically linked that if we don't know our history, uh, we're sort of behind the eight ball when, when in terms of trying to fight and, you know, manage any disease. Sure thing. Yeah. Uh, my family on my dad's side, we had a Zoom meeting um, last month to discuss our family medical history. So everyone knows, you know, what our family members have passed away from or succumbed to at an early age and um, what not, you know, that whole runs in my family. Super idea. That's honestly, I never heard anybody doing that, but that's that's a super idea. We yeah. should all be doing that. Yeah, because my younger cousins, you know, they 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 don't know. Um, exactly. I think a lot of them they don't know that they didn't have that information. Um, but yep. sidebar, um, is that what inspired you to become an oncologist? The your two grandfathers and an uncle. Absolutely. So, all four of my grandparents died from cancer. So wow. both, my, both my grandfathers have prostate. Uh, my, my father's mother died of breast cancer and my mother's mother died of complications from uterine cancer. So that, that was kind of like my introduction to medicine. Obviously I was young when, when several of them died, but that was honestly, that's the first time I ever remember being inside of a, a hospital, a big hospital um, and seeing people inside the hospital, seeing, you know, all the stuff that we see on TV. So absolutely. Yeah. That, that was definitely an inspiration for me. So that was in your personal essay for your, your medical school application. <laughs> it, it probably was. <laughs> I think it was, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I know it was. <laughs> it must have worked, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that, though, because um, we get our inspiration from, from somewhere. So Absolutely, absolutely. Um, before I go on to the next question, um, what does prostate cancer look like? Or, or I'm sorry, more specifically, if someone 
has prostate cancer and they're not asymptomatic, right? What symptoms might they have? What could be an indication to a man that he might have prostate cancer? So that's an excellent question. The, the vast majority of people who have prostate cancer do not have any symptoms at all, um, and which speaks to the, very, the huge importance of screening. Yes. So you don't have symptoms, and the same can be said for breast cancer. The vast majority of women who have breast cancer, they don't have any pain in their breasts or lumps or bumps or anything. They get a mammogram. Uh, so the, the overwhelming majority of men who have prostate cancer is picked up because they have a high PSA uh, or they have a positive prostate exam. Their doctor does a, a prostate biopsy and bam, they find the prostate cancer. Um, so that's, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I know it's the overwhelming majority. I would say probably 60, 70, 80% of patients do not have any symptoms. They're diagnosed via screening. So screening is hugely, hugely, hugely important. Uh, unfortunately, if you present with symptoms, that means your disease is probably advanced. Uh, so some of the classical symptoms would be back pain, meaning that the, the cancer is spread to your bones, usually your spine. Um, another uh, classic example would be um, uh, hematuria or peeing blood. So if you see blood in your urine, and, and that's across the board, actually, let me just touch on that for a second. If you ever see blood in your urine, period, you need to call your doctor, simple as that. There's no condition where you should see blood in your urine ever. Um, and sometimes it can be something very basic, like a urinary tract infection, but other times it can be something terrible like prostate cancer or kidney cancer. So that would be another uh, common presentation would be blood in the urine. Um, but other things that you could see more rarely would be um, headaches. Again, evidence that maybe it's spread to your brain. Uh, shortness of breath or cough, evidence that is spread to your lungs. So usually people who are presenting with symptoms, oftentimes their disease, unfortunately, is advanced and much more difficult to treat at that point. Gotcha. So yeah, so men, you may not have pain in your rectum. You may not have pain during rectal sex. or Because I've heard my patients say so many different things like, oh, this isn't happening or that isn't happening. I don't have, I don't need to go get screened. Because we ask patients about preventative care. You know, women, have you had your mammogram? Did you eat your pap smear? Um, and the same for men and the colonoscopy. And um, because some of what we do on mental health is still primary care. Um, so guys, you may not have symptoms. So please don't go by that. Um, yeah, that, that, that's the number one thing that I always want patients to take away from any discussion medically is screening saves lives. So, you know, mo most cancers, if caught early, including prostate cancer, is curable. Uh, but if you don't get screened, you're not going to catch it early. On the flip side, most cancers that are caught late are not curable. We're doing a better job now than we did five or 10 years ago, but still, you got a much tougher uphill climb if your disease is caught late in it when it's already spread. Wow. Could you say just a little bit? I don't want you to go into a lot of details because I know it's, it can get complicated. Um, but say a little bit about staging. Yeah, so um, st staging, uh, the, the, quite simply, is how far or how not far your cancer has spread when it was diagnosed. And I, I usually try to keep it simple with staging. So you have stage one, which is early, stage four, which is the highest stage, which is late, and then of course you have two and three in between there. So a stage one cancer is, it, where it started is where it is. So that's a small tumor. 
If a stage one lung cancer, you have a small tumor in your lung. A stage one prostate cancer, you have a small tumor that's inside your prostate. A stage one breast cancer, you have a small tumor in the breast. Most of the time, those stage one cancers are caught with screening. So you don't have any symptoms. We just do a test. We find it. Uh, stage two is a larger tumor, but it's still in that same area. So a stage two prostate cancer, cancer is still inside the prostate, but it's a larger tumor inside. Okay. All right. Can you hear me? Say that last part again, because you froze okay. a little bit. I'm sorry. So a stage two prostate cancer, uh, you have a larger tumor, but it's still inside the prostate. Uh, stage three means it's starting to spread. So either the tumor is big enough to where it's broken outside of the prostate or it's spread to other areas around the prostate down in the pelvis, like your lymph nodes or other soft tissues that we see. Um, stage four, again, which is the highest stage, means that it's spread to another organ. It started in your prostate. It's spread to your liver. It's spread to your lungs. It's spread to your bones, spread to your brain. So, um, and again, most stage four cancers are, they're very difficult to cure. They can be done, but it, again, it's a lot of work involved with curing a stage four cancer. Gotcha, gotcha. So one of my patients came and said, Doc, my, my, um, my doctor told me to have my prostate removed. Right. And, um, and he started to cry. Um, what do you say to a patient um, when that's the recommendation? Um, will it affect their life? I know we talked about it in the beginning of this session, like what the function of the prostate and how it can affect um, a man's life. Will it affect erections? That's the first thing is like, it's going to ruin my sex life. I won't be able to achieve an erection or, or get hard, or um, I won't be able to ejaculate. I won't have um, sexual desire or libido. So if someone has their prostate removed, can it affect those things? Let's take libido first, sexual desire. Does it affect that? Right. So, well, you know, as you know, sexual desire is, is, is a complex interplay um, between physical conditions, between, um, you know, psychosocial, between lifestyle, et cetera. So, you know, that's a complex interplay um, that is, is clearly well beyond the scope of any discussion that we would have tonight. <laughs> but that being said, um, with treatments for prostate cancer, um, the, the way they look at it is they measure uh, it. They measure impotence or lack thereof, and basically all that's defined as is the ability to have intercourse. Mm -hmm. um, so they don't, you know, necessarily look at sort of sexual drive again because that's that's a variable that can, you know, depend on age. Obviously, a man who's forty may have a different sex drive than a man who's seventy-five. Um, you know, a man who has cardiovascular disease may have different sex drive than one who doesn't. Um, a man who has depression or anxiety and is on, you know, medication for that may have a different libido than a man who doesn't, et cetera. So as you know, that's a complex interplay. But mm -hmm. speaking strictly from the ability to have intercourse, um, it, it does have an effect, treatment for prostate cancer. Um, it's usually very minimal uh, and much better than we did, say, you know, five, or actually, let's say 10 or 20 years ago. Because our treatments are better, but also the side effects from those treatments are better. So, you know, for instance, if you have a local prostate cancer, um, and there's a lot of different treatments for local prostate cancer, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but let's say you have to have your prostate removed. Like your, your patient said, you know, doc, this, this doctor's telling me he needs to remove my prostate to cure my prostate cancer. Um, with new treatments 
for prostate cancer, which is primarily going to be a robotic assisted surgery. So, you know, essentially the robot is assisting the surgeon um, to, to be more precise with their surgery, which basically means there's going to be less side effects and less long-term issues. Um, if we look at large data sets, large groups of patients, um, their ability to continue to have intercourse is somewhere in the 90% range. So, you know, 80 to 90% or 80 to 90 out of 100 of these men are going to be able to achieve intercourse. Obviously not right away, but they'll usually look at it at 6 to 12 months. So, so absolutely. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Now, the, the other side effect that we look at is uh, incontinence. You know, a lot of men worried about, um, you know, peeing on themselves or having to wear depends or dribbling or things of that nature, um, which, as you know, varies with age as well and the size of your prostate and other things. Um, but with those, uh, with the newer studies that we're doing, the newer treatments, again, the robotic-assisted prostatectomy, um, continence rates are, you know, 98%, meaning 98% of men don't have to wear a pad. You know, they're not peeing on themselves. They're not running around smelling like urine on a regular basis. So, you know, excellent outcomes with both um, intercourse, the ability to continue to have sex, but also the ability to continue to control your urine stream. Okay. You're right. That is important. If someone is smelling urine all the time, that's a, a Debbie Downer for them. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but we've done much better. In the past, those rates were as high as 50%. So, you know, probably 20, 30 years ago before the robotic surgery became prevalent, um, you know, incontinence rates and impotence rates were as high as 50%, which is, you know, you had a coin flip chance of not, not being able to have intercourse, but then not being able to control your urine stream as well, which, as you know, can cause a whole lot of problems. Right, right. Okay. So I guess um, we're, we're sort of um, near the end. We talked a lot about prost the prostate, prostate cancer. Um, right. You included a lot of extra tidbits. Thank you for that. Um, so people should be more informed. We're, we're not going to go into a whole lot of detail about treatment. Um, right. You know, I'm sure people get more time with their oncologist than they do with their primary care doctor, you know, right. so, so that you can explain the options to them so they can be an informed consumer, really make a decision as to whether or not they want to undergo whatever treatment you're recommending. But, um, and it seems like the advancements in treatment of cancer have come a long way. Um, so from talking to my patients, when they tell me what, um, you know, what they're taking or what types of treatments they're undergoing, can you tell us what the options are now? Um, I know it depends on staging and all these different factors, but sort of, a, I guess, a basic or broad overview? Right. So it, it, it is very complex. It depends on a lot of things, like you mentioned. It depends on stage, which we talked about a few minutes ago. It depends on the condition of the patient. Um, you know, obviously a younger man, 45 or even 60 healthy, is going to have a lot more options than a, than a man who's 90 or a man who's 65 and not healthy. Um, yeah. But it, 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 it also depends on whether your goal of treatment is curing that prostate cancer, which is going to be early prostate cancer, stage one or two, or is your goal to sort of control the disease and prevent problems from happening, which is going to, what's the case with more advanced disease, stage three, and definitely with stage four. Um, mm. All that being said, I, the most important part is that you need to get a multidisciplinary evaluation, which in simple terms means 
you need to see doctors from different specialties. You know, you touched on it in the beginning when we first jumped on the call today. Um, you know, it, there's doctors in all different kinds of specialties. But when, you're, when you have prostate cancer, you definitely need to see a urologist, which is a prostate surgeon, bladder surgeon, kidney surgeon. Um, you most likely need to see a radiation oncologist, which is a doctor who treats cancer with radiation. Uh, you may need to see a medical oncologist like myself, which is, again, someone who treats cancer with medical therapies, pills or infusions. Um, but you may even need to see some other types of doctors, uh, interventional radiologist. Um, you know, you might need to see um, a lot of patients. We do send a psychiatrist beforehand to sort of get, uh, you know, to sort of help them tease through um, sort of uh, managing some of the side effects and how they want to decide which treatment to do. Um, you, all, you also need to see a radiologist who's an expert at looking at your screenings, exams, and your pictures, and your CAT scans, and deciding what the best treatment may be. Uh, nowadays, you also need to have a pathologist evaluating your biopsy, which is also going to incre increase your treatment options. So, you know, the key there is you want to get as much information as possible and make sure you're getting to see the right doctors. And then what we're doing now, we have these things called tumor boards where we all meet as a team and we decide what is the best treatment for that individual patient. Uh, and like I said, it's usually gonna be some combination of surgery, radiation, and medical treatments. All right. So, you know, and obviously- <laughs> No, it's cool though, because people have to know what to expect or if it's someone who Absolutely. watches this now or later, um, and maybe they know someone who was diagnosed with prostate cancer and they're wondering um, what has to be coordinated. What do they have to do? Just give them Absolutely. a lot to think about. Um, Cause you know, I was thinking chemo radiation. And so. Yeah. And, and those, those are all often parts of it. Uh, but you know, again, it just depends on where you are, what stage, but you definitely need to be having all those conversations. Um, you know, a lot of times what will happen is you'll go see, uh, one type of doctor, they'll say, this is what you need to do. And if you haven't got input from another type of doctor that also treats that, then you might not be getting the best treatment for you. Wow. You know, it's just one of those things where um, if you don't have, um, if you're a lay person, you know, right. this, is, this could be overwhelming. This could be overwhelming, mm -hmm. trying Absolutely. to coordinate all these different types of care and interventions. And if you Absolutely. don't have someone advocating for you to assist with that, man. Absolutely. And, and Matt, you know, you're, you're in South Florida, obviously a major metropolitan area. I'm in the D.C. area, major metropolitan area. Uh, but, you know, imagine we got patients living in, you know, rural Virginia or, you know, um, you know, rural Alabama or rural Texas or in Alaska where they may not be able to get to a medical center where they're seeing all these different types of doctors. Um, but then, you know, there's even studies out there to say that, you know, people of color, people of African descent, that we're, we're treated less aggressively um, than, than our white counterparts or, you know, people who uh, may be um, uh, underinsured may be treated less aggressively. So, you know, it's important that we, that stuff like we're doing right now, where we're educating people, uh, to get out there and, you know, at least be armed with the right questions to ask, you know, this doctor. Um, the other thing is out there, obviously, there's a lot of resources on the internet. Um, again, you know, people always make jokes about Dr. Google, and I always tell my patients, there's nothing wrong with going on the internet, but it's, what is your source? What are yeah. their credentials? Um, have you vetted them? Which, you know, you talked about at the beginning of our discussion, 
you know, when, when somebody who has excellent training and they've been vetted by their peers, they've been checked by their peers, you can trust what they're going to say. Whereas if somebody doesn't have the best training and, you know, they, they're, they're, they haven't collaborated with, with peers in their group and been reviewed, then, you know, you might want to question what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So you said a lot of good stuff. These uh, your your last I mean, everything has been good. But um, I mean, I really think I can wrap it up there. I asked you so many questions. Um, I don't think it's so no one has called my 951 my brain tonight, surprisingly. <laughs> so what they'll do is ask me later in my DM, what's the number again? And I'll, I'll tell them, well, he's not on now. <laughs> so um, yeah, it, that's just how it goes sometimes. Um, but I think I asked all the, the questions that folks did DM earlier and kind of emailed. I asked people to send me questions. And so that's how um, I came up with the questions that I did ask you. Um, I appreciate your time. I, I wanted to end on just what you were saying about coordinating care, how important it is, how important it is to vet your doctor. Um, because it's just like anything. I tell people, if you're buying a car, you want to do your research to... Um, right to make an informed decision. So your body and medicine and um, your health is no different. Absolutely. Agree 100%. 100. You, you, you want to check credentials. You want to, you know, and the other thing I'll add is there's nothing wrong with getting a second opinion. Um, a lot of sometimes, you know, people are afraid to get a second opinion. Um, even some of my parents will be kind of, they'll think they're offending me if they're getting a second opinion. I always tell people, you know, you, there's nothing wrong with getting a second opinion. If you're not uh, 100% comfortable with what a physician is telling you, then, you know, always go ahead and get a second opinion and you can, that gives you more information. It helps you make an informed decision. Yeah. Yep. 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 So any last words or anything you'd like to leave with the viewers? No. Um, well, so I, I, I've said it before. I want to say it again, though, screening, uh, talk to your doctor about screening for prostate cancer. Screening for all cancers saves lives. Any patient, man, woman, who's on this call, you, every year when you see your doctor, you want to ask him, am I up to date on my cancer screening? Because that's the best way that you're going to be able to catch your cancer early and cure it. Uh, the other thing is, you know, if, if you have patients or interested callers or fans or whoever who reaches out to you and have questions, you know how to get in contact with me. I'll be more than happy to answer those questions and, you know, follow up with them. So. Yes, 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 yes. And, and I like that. Um, am I up to date on my cancer screenings? Yes. At, that, that's, at your annual physical, your annual checkup, that should always be a part of the conversation, especially for, you know, any adult, any adult anybody over 30, essentially, anybody over, you know, mid-20s. But certainly, you know, people, you know, over the age of 40, absolutely, needs to be covered every single year. Okay. And that is the word, y'all. This was the cancer talk. So we're going to leave it with that for Therapy Thursday. We're not talking a mental health issue, but this is important. June is Men's Health Awareness Month. So I wanted to come on with Dr. Jeffrey Moore, um, hematologist, oncologist. And if you weren't able to watch live, hopefully you can watch and listen later on. Listen on my podcast, The Brain Love Podcast, on most podcast outlets or mediums. So Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anchor of course and um, of course you can watch here on youtube thank you dr moore thank you so much dr delvina so i'll see you soon you, before you hit end you gotta say brain love brain love <laughs> i okay. wish i could say it in spanish too <laughs> <laughs>
Yo hablo español, ¿y tú? Un poquito. <laughs> All righty. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. See you later. Okay. Good night. Bye-bye. It's the end of an episode. Thank you guys for joining me on my couch. It's been a pleasure. It's Dr. Delvina. Remember, every day you must have brain love. Balance. You can't have all work and no play, and you can't have all play and no work. Reframe. Reframe your negative thinking. Think positively. Avoid negative people. Inside, everything you need It's inside of you. Look inside yourself. Needs. Know your needs. Your needs come first, not everyone else's. Limitations. Limit your expectations of yourself. Ownership. Own your mistakes. Learn from them and move on. Vengeance is not yours. It's the Lord's. Express yourself. Every day, meaningful communication. Don't go to bed angry. And that's been my show, guys. Brain love.